But today, we are finishing up our look at the book of Jeremiah, and I, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, having the, the privilege to study and prepare for our Sunday morning gathering while going through the book of Jeremiah. I've been pastoring for 20 years now. This is the first time I've ever preached a series through Jeremiah, and admittedly, in my own reading, and probably in your own reading as well, Jeremiah falls into a, sec- a section of Scripture that I think sometimes tends to be the section of Scripture that we, that we read the least. Uh, the prophets of the Old Testament tend to be a portion of Scripture or a segment of Scripture that most of the time gets skipped over. I don't hear a ton of sermons from those chapters. Um, I, I know in my own personal life that I've, I feel confident that I have preached from other portions of God's Word more than I have preached from that segment of God's Word. And so at the end of last year, I felt uh, led to, to preach through Jeremiah. And as, we looked, as we've been looking through the book of Jeremiah, one of the things that we've been seeing as we've been highlighting some of the major sections in this book is that Jeremiah did not have an easy experience. As he was called by the Lord to be a prophet to the, to the nation of Judah, it was not an easy task. He spent 42 years uh, preaching and co- proclaiming the, the, the word that the Lord had given him to proclaim. And as far as I can tell, looking through the book of Jeremiah, there's only two instances where people seemed even remotely receptive to the things that he was proclaiming. So again, I can't imagine going 42 years Uh, preaching and teaching, and for most of that time being ignored or treated poorly or whatever it may be, but that was what his experience was like. And he would tell the people of Judah, things were about to happen. And he would tell them that the Lord was going to send Babylon to judge them, and that they were going to go into captivity in Babylon for 70 years, and that they were to cooperate with that. But he also told them in the midst of all of this, that a day was going to come when the Lord was going to usher in a new covenant. And that new covenant, that was a prophecy related to what Jesus was going to do when Christ came to this earth and ushered in the new covenant that you and I have the privilege to live under. And Jeremiah talked about all of those things in this book. And as we look at chapter 50 today, this is the last chapter we're going to be looking at. There's some weeping and sorrow and grieving that's referenced in this chapter. At this point, the people of Judah have already been taken into captivity. They're now in captivity in Babylon, although some of them have tried to escape to Egypt, and then there's a few that are remaining in Judah at this time. But there's sorrow in this portion of Scripture, yet the kind of sorrow that we're going to look at for the most part in this portion of Scripture is actually a healthy kind of sorrow. But one of the things I want to bring up as we look at this is that your sorrow, our sorrow, is only for a season. So I have that as our perspective as we take a look at this this morning. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 50. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. And this is what it says here in this passage. The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and proclaim. Set up a banner and proclaim. Conceal it not and say... Babylon is taken, Bel is put to shame, Merodach is dismayed, her images are put to shame, her idols are dismayed, for out of the north a nation has come up against her, which shall make her land a desolation, and none shall dwell in it, both man and beast shall flee away. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together. Weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. 
They shall ask the way to Zion, with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. All who found them have devoured them, and their enemies have said, We are not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord, their habitation of righteousness, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Flee from the midst of Babylon, and go out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be as male goats before the flock. For behold, I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be taken. Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her shall be sated, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the fact that over the past several months we've had the privilege to look at some of these major sections from the book of Jeremiah and learn how you operate in the lives of your people and learn a little bit more about the things that you do to glorify your name and to ultimately produce holiness in the lives of those who are called by you. Lord, we pray that as we conclude our study of this book and as we take a look at a portion of scripture today that talks uh, again about your discipline and talks about sorrow We pray, Lord, that we would understand these things from your perspective, that you would give us your eyes and your mind to be able to receive them rightly and to be able to live them out and put them into practice in our day-to-day living. Lord, we're grateful for this portion of Scripture, and we thank you for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple things I want to ask you to think about just as we open up our look at this passage uh, of Scripture today, but for a moment... I want you to think about something during the course of your life that has made you feel emotionally sorrowful. And I realize that that's typically not the type of thing that we prefer to think about, but since it's not wise to deny ourselves an opportunity to grieve, um, just take a moment to think about something like that, something that falls in the sorrowful category. Bring it to your mind just for a moment. All right, now that you've brought it to mind, couple more follow-ups. How profound was your sorrow? You know, as you think about that moment or that event, how profound was your sorrow? Maybe I should even say, are you still in the midst of it? And if not, while it was fresh, while it was current, uh, what did you do? Meaning, how did it impact your daily life? And how did it impact the nature of your prayers? Did you ask God for relief from it, or did you find yourself feeling somewhat angry at God for allowing that grief to come into your life in the first place? And if your sorrow was a while ago, you know, if it was something that you've had some time to just kind of think about and see from a different perspective, can you identify anything good that eventually came from it? I think truthfully speaking, It's often in our most difficult seasons that we experience powerful results in in just the fact that our most difficult seasons tend to produce tender hearts, strong arms, strong faith, 
It's those difficult seasons that tend to have that kind of result in our lives. And I think many of us can testify to the fact that even though we didn't enjoy our earlier seasons of sorrow, we don't tend to regret them now because we're grateful for the things that we've learned and we're grateful for the ways that our faith was developed and we've become stronger. And something else that the Lord teaches us through sorrowful experiences is that they don't last forever. In the moment, they may feel like they're lasting forever or that they're dragging on for so long, but they don't last forever. In fact, for those of us who are in Christ, meaning if you trust in Jesus Christ, you're part of the family of God through faith in Christ, our sorrow lasts only a season. And when you look at the book of Jeremiah, specifically chapter 50 that we're in today, we can see that that fact is displayed in some of the things that are referenced in these verses. Now, I want to show you a couple things that are referenced here in this portion of Scripture that kind of set up this thought. And one of the things that, that uh, is illustrated here in this chapter, uh, as the Lord talks about these things, even before he gets to some of the sorrow here, he illustrates the fact that the, the proud are brought low. Look again at the first three verses here. It says it this way. It says, The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet, Declare among the nations and proclaim. Set up a banner and proclaim. Conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken. Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. By the way, those were the names of some of the, the prominent idols in Babylon. And it says, her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. For out of the north, a nation has come up against her, which shall make her land a desolation. And none shall dwell in it, both man and beast shall flee away. Now let's pause there for just a second. A little bit of history on what was taking place here. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon, which he led, they were the chosen instruments that the Lord used uh, when he brought judgment against the people of Judah. He used Nebuchadnezzar, he uses the nation of Babylon to bring that judgment. When you think about the people of Judah, we know up to this point they had had every spiritual and every kind of social advantage that you could imagine. But instead of glorifying the Lord who had blessed them with these things, they forsook the Lord, and what they started to do was to give their allegiance to the idols, to the false gods of foreign nations. And throughout the land of Judah, idolatry was rampant, but the Lord addressed that through this 70-year season of captivity. He was using this to purge them of many of these things, and he was using Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar as a tool for that purging. So again, it's true that Babylon was this tool of correction that the Lord was using to discipline his wayward children, but in, instead of accepting that role with humility, instead of Babylon saying, all right, we're, we're being used of the Lord to accomplish a specific task, it's clear that the nation of Babylon became drunk with their pride. They thought they were awesome. They thought they were fantastic. And so they, they boasted in their dominance. It was their, that was like their dominant perspective. That's how they thought of themselves. That's how they interacted with one another. They boasted in their dominance. And we can see in multiple places throughout Scripture that when that becomes the pattern of your life, the Lord doesn't hesitate to change it. Because God is directly opposed to pride. He shows that in multiple places in, in, throughout His Word. He makes a point to deal with Satan's pride. He makes a point to deal with the pride of the fallen angels. Uh, the Lord makes a point to deal with the pride of boastful humanity. 
One of my favorite portions of Scripture, this is actually quoted three times in the Bible, but I find that the easiest one to remember is in 1 Peter because it's 1 Peter 5.5, 5, so that one sticks in my mind. It's also in Proverbs, and it's also in the book of James. But it happens to say this. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, regarding Babylon's pride, what the Lord did was he decided to bring them low. They didn't exercise humility, so the Lord brought them low. And in 539 B.C., they were conquered by a man named Cyrus. And Cyrus was the leader of the Medes and the Persians, very powerful leader in that generation. And through Cyrus, the kingdom was taken away from the Babylonians. Their bragging rights were rescinded, their season of dominance, their season of influence. It was brought to an abrupt end, and it was done. And again, if you've taken the time to read even a small portion of the Bible, you've probably noticed this as a repeated theme throughout Scripture. The Lord opposes pride. Now, thankfully, in His mercy... He often orchestrates interesting ways that pride can be stripped away, not just from nations, but also from from us, from his people as well. Sometimes he uses a season of sorrow to do that. And maybe even as you think through the things that were good that came from a previous season of sorrow in your life, maybe you can identify that as one of the benefits. I know that he certainly did that for the people of Judah during their captivity in Babylon. He used that time of sorrow, that time of captivity to strip away their pride. He also stripped away the pride of the nation of Babylon. And again, don't be surprised if the Lord chooses to do that at some point in your life as well. It may not feel pleasant. In fact, it certainly won't feel pleasant. And maybe we won't think of this immediately in the midst of those moments, but it's actually evidence of God's fatherly love when he cares enough about us to strip away our unhealthy pride. In fact, I like what it tells us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 11. It says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God's discipline is actually evidence of the fact that he cares for you. I grew up with a friend whose parents never disciplined him. And you know what? The ironic thing related to that in his life was he also grew up feeling like he wasn't loved enough to be disciplined by them. Every one of us, when we were growing up, we, we probably fought against the discipline that was imposed upon us. But then when we look back on it as adults, we're grateful for it. And it shows us that someone, our parents... Whoever disciplined us was actually invested enough in us to care about our well-being. And when the Lord looks at us, he's invested in our well-being. He cares enough to intervene on our behalf. So he was doing that for the people of Judah. Don't be surprised when he chooses to do that for me or for you or for any of us that he loves as his own. And then this scripture, after setting it up by talking about the fact that the Lord brings the proud low... It starts to talk about the fact that there's some weeping going on, and you have the people weeping with godly sorrow. And it's a prophetic couple of verses here. It's talking about something yet in the future, but look at what it says in verses 4 and 5 of Jeremiah 50 as it addresses this. It says, In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, 
The people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together. So you have the northern and southern kingdoms of Judah uniting together again. And it says, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion, with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. I love that portion of Scripture. A while back, I, I got a message. I, I believe it was, it was probably via email that I got this message. Uh, but a man contacted me, and he asked me if I had any available time to meet with him. And I, we you know, just kind of looked at our calendars, and we figured out a time that would work. And I said, yes, yeah, certainly. So he stopped by here at the church, and uh, he said, you know, can I just chat with you in your office? And I, I said, absolutely. And so we sat down in the office, and we started talking. And without me going into all the specific details of some of the things that were talked about, he started to verbally unpack quite a few things that over the course of his life he had invited into his life that was producing nothing but regret. And he just kept going through the list and he was talking about all these things that he had invited in. And he wanted to make a change. He had become very tired of the mess that he felt that he had made of his life and he wanted to make a change. And it became obvious to me that this was probably the first time he had really openly shared these kind of concerns with others, because as he spoke, he started to struggle to get his words out. He had to take long pauses as he was speaking. And when his words finally came out, I remember watching as this man erupted in tears. He erupted in tears. It wasn't just a little bit here and a little bit there. He erupted in tears. Now, I'll say this, and, and many of the men in this room will agree. For the most part, it's hard for a man to cry. There are certain expectations that we have of ourselves and certain expectations that we feel from others that, that not, it doesn't always feel acceptable to us. Even if it's something that we wanted to do, we fight it. And... And I could tell that in that moment that that was very difficult for this man. But I remember also at the, at the time feeling very, very happy for him because I could tell that he was going to start to experience victory over the things that had held him captive for so long because he was finally bringing these things out into the light. He was bringing these things out into the open. And he was sharing a whole host of things that obviously he had held on to for quite some time. I haven't seen him in a long time, but, uh, but when this comes to my mind, I often think to pray for him. And as he shared, again, it was with many, many visible, soaking wet tears. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't I mean, like, it, it, was start, it almost started looking like he had been jogging. It was that much water coming from his face. And when you look at this portion of Scripture, these verses describe a future time of weeping, specifically for the people of Israel and Judah. Uh, that they would experience together, right? So you have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel as well, that we refer to as Judah, but they would experience this time of weeping as a reunited body, and you have Jeremiah in this passage of Scripture prophetically speaking something that the Lord reveals to him. He's describing this coming together, this seeking of the Lord their God, turning toward their homeland and making a covenant to follow the Lord, and again, weeping as this took place. Now, when your heart is broken, what do you do with those tears? When you have that kind of experience, I, I, and again, I'll, I'll confess that uh, one of my least favorite things to do is to allow myself to cry. 
but I'll also confess this, that as I've gotten older, I've become a little bit more comfortable with this in the sense that when it's appropriate to do so, I've started to realize, why fight it? I had the opportunity, my son Daniel and I went to see the Apostle Paul movie about a month ago that was out. I don't know if you saw it yet. I actually have intention at some point when it's on video to show it here at the church. Um, but I couldn't help, obviously, at certain, really at one certain pivotal spot in that, um, shedding tears. And so my son's next to me there, and uh, he was watching the movie, and I'm watching the movie, and he didn't see the tears at first. He heard this sound. <laughs> like that, it was just like, it was like, <clears throat> and he's like, what's that? And I'm like, I'm fine. And it, like twice, like, <clears throat> you know, like just that loud, that sound when you know you're trying to fight it, and then finally you're like, oh, what am I doing here? I'm like, all right, it's not crowded in here. I don't think I know these people. <sighs> oh, there's popcorn salt on that. It's making it worse. But I don't, I don't know. You probably fight it to maybe uh, to a degree. But the truth of the matter is, there are times when it is the most appropriate thing in the world to weep. And this would be particularly true when we consider for a moment what this passage is trying to describe. It's talking about here, when we're looking at this, it's talking about a a day when the people of Israel and Judah finally begin to, uh, to appreciate the depth of the love of God for them. And they grieve tears of repentance, they grieve tears of godly sorrow as they begin to take steps toward God instead of running from God. Now think about that for just a second. So these are, these are tears of a godly sorrow as they're running, as they're going in the direction that God wants them to go in instead of the direction that they had been going in, which was far from the Lord. It reminds me of what it says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, but it tells us there, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Do you ever think about that verse? I don't know if that's a verse you're familiar with or not, but it speaks about the healthy nature of godly grief, that there are certain things that it's very appropriate for our hearts and our eyes to weep about. And it says godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But what does worldly grief produce? Worldly grief produces death. It produces regret. When we're running from the Lord, there's death and regret that come with that. But when we're running toward the Lord in repentance with godly grief over the fact that we start to connect emotionally with how our sin grieves our loving Father, and we begin running toward Him instead of running away from Him, that leads to salvation without regret. And that's what Scripture tells us, and that's actually what's being illustrated here in this portion of Scripture. Can you identify with that kind of experience? When you think about your life, can you identify that with, with that sort of thing? Has there ever been something in your life that you tried to hold on to for so, so long, even though you knew that whatever that something was was grieving the heart of God, but yet you, you tried to hold on to it with both hands, you tried to keep it as part of your life, and you held on to it, and what happened to you while you were holding on to it? What happened? And what kind of release did you experience when you finally repented of that? And you gave that missing piece of your heart or that missing piece of your life over to the Lord that you became convinced genuinely loved you to begin with. There are few things on this earth that are quite as beautiful as a heart that learns to weep tears of repentance. And Scripture tells us 
that heaven itself rejoices over lost sinners who come to a point where they turn from their sin to the Lord. It says this, Jesus said this, in fact, in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, he says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Heaven itself rejoices over this godly sorrow that produces repentance as we stop running from the Lord and begin running toward the Lord. And here you see this prophetically illustrated through the lips of Jeremiah as the Lord gives him the words to say. He's describing something yet future when this will happen in earnest. And it would seem like such a contrast to the spot that the people of Judah were in at the time that this was being written. But this is something the Lord was giving everyone a glimpse of, a future reality where hearts would come to him. Something else that we can see as we look at this portion of Scripture, it begins talking about these lesser shepherds. But when you, look at, when you compare that to the grand narrative of Scripture, one of the things we begin to realize is the greater shepherd replaces the lesser. So throughout